are studying the book of 1 Corinthians together in a series entitled Christian Living in a Pagan World. And we come to chapter 11 today. If you're with us today and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now. Just wave and get their attention. They'll give you a Bible. That way you can read the Word of God in addition to hearing it to have double the impact. I'd like you to double-check my teaching anyway. So I want you to have a Bible for that. And please, if you don't own a Bible, make that a gift from the Lord to you today. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, <clears throat> verse 17. Verse 2 and through 16, it's just a bunch of stuff about head coverings and men wearing long hair. I know it has no interest to any of you. So... Um, Pastor David was supposed to teach on it last week and didn't. And um, All kidding aside, we'll pick it up in verse 2. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I deliver them to you. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of every wo- of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, uh, having his head covered, dishonors his head, or Christ. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, that is her husband, for that is one and the same as if she, her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or have her hair shaved, let her be covered. For a man ought, uh, indeed ought, not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Thanks, Paul, as if this wasn't hard enough. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man and the Lord. For as woman, as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman. But all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that a man, if a man has long hair, It's a dishonor to him. But if a woman has long hair, it's a glory to her. For her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We just want you to know, as we tell you so often, what a privilege it is to be able to turn to it and to leave all of the indoctrination of the world and all of the self-indoctrination that can go on in our own heads and in our own minds and to come to something that is otherworldly and is always perfectly pure and wise and holy and a blessing from the one who made us. And we thank you for being able to turn this morning collectively as a church family to your word. We ask that you'd open it up to us. Speak to us what's on your heart. And we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us in a way that we understand what this passage has to do with our personal relationship with you. So we ask for that work of your Holy Spirit. We surrender to your Holy Spirit, to his voice, his activity in our life and in this room now. And we pray these things and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We begin this morning by candidly admitting that this passage of Scripture is uh, very complex and It is one of the most difficult passages in all of the Bible uh, to understand. And uh, for that reason, it has been highly debated for 2,000 years, and it remains controversial for many Christians even to this day. Most often the passage is thought of supremely 
as the Bible passage that speaks to the importance of Christian women or a Christian wife wearing a head covering at church and the passage in the Bible that speaks of the fact that it's a shame for men to wear long hair. But I would contend that as important as those issues were to the Christians in Corinth at that time, they teach us a larger and a more important lesson that we as Christians need to apply to our lives wherever we live in the world and whatever culture we live in in the world. And this morning, let's look at what we do know from the passage and look at those things first, and then we'll work our way back to the things that are a little bit harder to understand. What we do know that is in the church at Corinth, a number of Christian women or Christian wives had chosen to stop wearing a head covering in church. We know that in doing so, because of the culture in Corinth, that it produced some negative uh, consequences, whether intended or unintended. And the first negative consequence was We're told in verse 3 that it reflected poorly upon God and his authority structure for the Christian home. Secondly, it, second, it reflected poorly upon the husbands of these wives. And finally, in doing so, it reflected badly upon the women themselves. So let's look at these negative consequences for a moment. In this Realization that this action of this group of women, the fact that it reflected badly upon her husband, that's spoken of there in verse 5 in the early part uh, of that verse. Somehow, within the culture of Corinth, doing what she did and removing her head covering, come to church without a head covering, this dishonored her head. It dishonored her husband. And in the culture of Corinth, this action would not have been viewed as an expression of liberty on her part, but in that culture it would have been viewed as an expression of her rebellion against her husband's authority, that she is now wearing uh, the pants in the family, so to speak. She is now uh, in control of the family which would have been in that culture to publicly disrespect and to dishonor the man or dishonor the husband. This action that the women were taking also reflected badly upon God, as we're told in verse 3. How so? Because God is the one who has established an authority structure for the family, an authority structure that makes man the head of the household, and any perceived expression of rebellion against her husband's authority would have also been seen within that culture as a rebellion against God and his authority structure for the home. We're told here that God's authority structure in the home consists of four layers. First, in terms of authority, there is God the Father. And then second, in terms of authority, there is Jesus. And when when Paul states that the head of Christ is God, he is not saying that Jesus is less than the Father in any way, because Jesus, like the Holy Spirit, is co-eternal, co-existent, and co-equal with the Father. But when Jesus came into this world in order to die on the cross for our sins, he voluntarily took a position of submission to the authority of the Father in doing so. Jesus spoke to the disciples in John chapter 4, and he said to them, My food is to do the will of him, that is the Father who sent me, and to finish his work. In John chapter 5, Jesus said, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek to do my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. When Paul wrote to the church 
at Philippi in chapter 2, as it's recorded there, it brings forth this very same truth. Paul wrote, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Now, third in terms of authority, there is the husband. As Paul puts it, the head of every man is Christ. And this is why a man is not to pray uh, or prophesy with his head uncovered, Paul said, because the bare head uh, represented the fact that there was no human authority between him and God. Fourth, in terms of authority, there is then the wife. Paul puts it this way, the head of the woman is man. Now, this is not saying that the husband is intrinsically uh, superior to the wife. Um, I do not personally apologize at all for the fact, and I certainly would not do it on God's behalf, that he has established an authority structure within the home. He knows how he's made men. He knows how he's made women. He knows how what's wise, what's loving, how things are to operate best. But I do think that because there's such a heightened sensitivity in this area, that somehow the idea that one person might be in submission, a wife might be in submission and should be to her husband, that somehow that speaks of the fact that she is lesser as a person. And all kinds of cultural baggage gets thrown on top of it. And so it's important for everyone to be clear in terms of where God stands on all of this so we're not uh, put imposing our own ideas or interpretations on Uh, the kind of the cleanness of what it is that he's saying. When he says that the head of the woman is man or the husband, this is not saying that the husband is superior to the wife intrinsically. She may and usually is the brighter of the two. I have no doubt. She is and usually is the smarter of the two. Uh, it, It does not mean that she is not more talented and infinitely more talented than her husband. In the same way that a captain in the army has a higher rank than a private, but the private can be a better man, but he has less authority. It also is not saying that the wife is inferior to her husband in terms of how much God loves her or how much God values her, or how important she is to God, how interested God is in her life. The woman is no more inferior to man in terms of importance or value than Jesus is to the Father. And that's the authority structure that is in there. Nobody would look and and demean Jesus by virtue of the fact that he chose to take a position of submission to the authority of the Father in order to accomplish a greater thing. And nobody should come to the same conclusions about a wife who chooses to do the same thing uh, for the same reasons. So this, what we have here in this submission is a functional subordination. In other words, it operates like this. When a husband and a wife differ on, say, a particular decision that needs to be made for the family, and if they're Christian husband and wife, they should then enter into a season of prayer for one another, pray to God for wisdom and direction related to this decision. And as they do that, if at the end of hours or days or weeks come back together and they both are divided related to the issue, she thinks we should go left, he thinks that we should uh, go right, somebody needs to have the calling and somebody needs to have the responsibility and the authority to make the call in that situation, to break the tie, so to speak, and God gives that authority to the husband. 
And then when the husband makes that decision and makes that call, the husband is to, the wife is to submit to it and to support him in that decision. Now in verses 7 through 9, Paul gives three reasons for this uh, order regarding authority related to husbands and wives and why men are not to cover their heads and wives are to do so. He tells us in verse 7, first of all, that man or Adam was created first and woman, that is Eve, was created second. Adam existed for some period of time before Eve was created. They were not created at the same time. In verse 8, second, man, Paul tells us, was not created from the woman, but woman was created from the man. Again, going back to Genesis chapter 2 and the record that is there. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs, that is, the Lord did, one of Adam's ribs, closed up the flesh in its place, and then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Now, third, Paul tells us in verse 9, that man was not created for woman, but woman was created for man. And she was created as a helper. Again, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man, and at that point in time, all there was was Adam. There was no Eve, there was no woman yet. God looked at man and said, It's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable or compatible to him. A husband is in need of a wife's submission and her support and her help in fulfilling his God-appointed role and his responsibility as the head of the family. So chronologically, woman and Eve came after Adam. Constitutionally, she was made for the man. She was made for Adam's, Adam. And so Paul writes, in, in essence, that neither in her origin nor in her purpose for which she was created can the woman claim priority over the man or claim a reason for usurping his authority or his headship. Now, it seems to me that this is a very good place in this particular sermon and in this passage to segue over to verses 11 and 12 to uh, put to rest any... um, temptation on the part of any man in the room or husband in the room uh, toward male chauvinism. We talk about chauvinists. We talk about male chauvinists. People talk about male chauvinist pigs. And um, sometimes we don't know what chauvinist means. In the dictionary, here's a dictionary definition of chauvinism, of a male chauvinist. It is a male who patronizes disparages or otherwise denigrates females in the belief that they are inferior to males. And no Christian husband is ever to view his wife in that way. And then as a result of viewing his wife in that way, then treat his wife with a combination of disrespect and intimidation and then turn to passages in the Bible and try to justify or support their doing so. That kind of man is a stupid head. He's a blockhead. He is dumb as a rock and about as far away from the heart of Christ as a person can be. So I want to do a little bit of a pushback related to this. Uh, So there's not a misunderstanding here in this. As Christian husbands, yes, we have authority, we have responsibility, we've been given a responsibility and the authority by God to fulfill that responsibility as the leader of our homes and the head of our homes, And but we are to use that position of authority as a means for expressing our love for our wife, expressing and communicating and modeling 
God's love for our uh, wife, and and we are to use that position of of authority in order to bless our wives and to enrich her life. So God had to make a choice here, and he had to make one or the other, the husband or the wife, the ultimate head of the family in terms of authority, and he's given that authority to the husband. But at the same time, he also granted the privilege and the blessing, don't throw anything at me, and the responsibility of childbearing to the woman, Paul tells us here, so that her vital role and her critical role in God's plan would never be forgotten or diminished by the man or by the husband. Because without her, mankind dies in one generation. Because no man, no matter how much authority he has, even God-given authority, can conceive, bear, and give birth to even a single child. So what God has done is he has spread a lot around between both the husband and the wife, and he's designed things in such a way as to make both sexes, both the husband and the wife, realize that we are mutually dependent upon one another, though we fulfill different roles within the marriage and within the family. God exists, uh, woman exists rather, because she was created by God out of man. But all life comes through the woman. Every single man in the world who's ever been born, every man in this room, we exist only because we have come into the world by way of a woman's womb. Now, verses 11 and 12 constitute, once again, a needed brushback for both the husband and the wife, a brushback that's needed even within our culture where it pushes back on the woman in this kind of a common and a growing lack of submission on the part of wives to their husbands, but also against what is a persistent attitude in even some Christian husbands that somehow possessing God-given authority means that they are as a result superior to their wife. In the eyes of God, Paul shoves all of that back um, at, in a corrective way uh, as it applies uh, in any wife or in any husband because they've gone sideways in their understanding of what all of this means. Now, we see that this taking off of the head coverings by some of these women in the church at Corinth that it reflected badly upon their husband, it reflected badly upon their uh, upon the Lord, but it also, third, reflected badly upon themselves in the context of Corinth. Now, many Bible commentators quote historians of the first century in this regard who declare that it was customary in Jewish culture, in Greek culture, and then later in Roman culture, for a woman to wear some kind of a head covering in public. And that if a woman, in general, if she failed to do so in the city of Corinth, then she ran the risk of being marked as a prostitute. And historians tell us that in the city of Corinth, for the most part, it was only prostitutes who went through the city with their heads uncovered. And you remember that uh, Corinth was the, the center of the worship of Aphrodite, the, um, the worship of sex, the worship of, of lust. And, and in this great temple to Aphrodite was built there in Corinth, and a thousand priestesses went out on a daily basis and prostituted themselves with men and sailors from all around the world, men from the city, in order to raise funds uh, for the temple. And these prostitutes would go about unveiled or without a head covering uh, for the most part. 
This helps explain Paul's comments in verse 6. In some places in the ancient world, a woman guilty of adultery or sexual immorality would have her hair cut off, and it was a sign of disgrace. What's interesting about Greek culture is that um, even though prostitution ran rampant, especially ritual prostitution, prostitution that um, uh, was practiced as a part of the worship of some kind of a man-made god, uh, even though that ran rampant within the culture, uh, the Greeks took a very, very dim view of adultery and other forms of sexual immorality, being unfaithful to uh, the marriage vow. How they compartmentalized that in their mind, that you could engage in men for the most part, so you know men have a capacity for compartmentalization, but that how um, there could be all of this sexual immorality going on related to prostitutes, and everyone could turn a blind eye to that, but then everybody became indignant related to sexual immorality when it violated a marriage vow. But And when a person would violate their marriage vow or become known as a sexually immoral person, then that woman's head was typically shaved, and it was a badge of dishonor and disgrace, and it communicated to everyone that uh, she was a sexually immoral person. And it appears that Paul was communicating that in the context of Corinth, for a woman to throw off her head covering would somehow identify her as a sexually immoral person, and so much so that it would be as if her hair was cut off in that culture. So whatever the case, it's very clear that for a married woman to throw off her head covering in the culture of Corinth, it reflected very, very poorly on her. I want us to notice in verses 4 through 6 from our text how the Christian husband and the Christian wife were to outwardly communicate their submission to God's order of authority within the home. Concerning the man, we're told in verse 4 that he was not to pray or prophesy. In other words, attend church, which is where that happened. He was not to pray or prophesy wearing a head covering. And the absence of a head covering on his head, again, it communicated that there was no human authority above him and that he was serious about fulfilling the responsibility that God had given to him to be the head of this home. Concerning the woman and how she, in the context of of the culture of Corinth, could communicate her submission to God's order of authority was In verses 5 and 6, when praying or prophesying, in other words, at church, she was to wear a head covering as a sign of her submission to her husband's position of authority. Again, in the culture, uh, cultural context of Corinth, the best way for a wife to communicate her submission to her husband and to the Lord and his authority structure for the home was to wear a head covering when praying or prophesying. Now, in our Western culture, uh, wearing a head covering doesn't communicate uh, any of that. Uh, There's no understanding related to uh, a head covering representing this or that because our culture is very, very far away in terms of how we conduct ourselves outwardly uh, from Greek culture and the culture and the the uh, that was a, the culture that was practiced there in Corinth. I would guess that if you went out after our service here today and uh, into the community and you asked a thousand non-Christians what the significance is of a woman wearing a head covering or a Christian wearing a head covering, that not one of them would be able to answer uh, correctly answer that question. And why wouldn't uh, they? Because wearing a head covering or not wearing a head covering as a Christian has no meaning in this culture. It had tremendous meaning in Corinth, but it has no meaning to us in this culture. I would venture to guess that if you were to um, ask even Christians 
why uh, Christian women wear uh, Christian wives wear a head covering in a church service if they if they do that that very very few Christians could answer that question if they were asked and they wouldn't have any idea why don't they have any idea because it doesn't communicate the same thing in this culture that it did in the culture of Corinth they'd have to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 study verses 2 through 16 and then learn to say that she wears the head covering as an expression of her submission to her husband as an expression of her submission to God's authority structure why would she have to go and learn what that means here from the Bible except for the fact that it is completely irrelevant in in our culture. I say it without malice, but uh, it is true. I would, in our culture, I would venture to guess that most people would say, um, I come to my conclusion about a Christian wife's submission to her husband's authority and concerning her submission to God's authority structure on the basis of the life that she lives, on the basis of how she treats her husband, on the basis of how she respects her husband or does not respect her husband, and how she obeys him or not, or whether she lives a life of obedience to God or not, a life that pleases God or not. We we take and come to conclusions about a Christian woman's taking seriously the authority given to her husband and the authority structure of God for the family, we take and in our culture because we're so free of so much of this kind of thing, we don't relate that to anything outward. We relate it completely to their lives and how they conduct themselves which very much resembles Peter's encouragement to wives in his first epistle, where he wrote in chapter 3, Wives, likewise be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without the word may be won by the conduct of their wives, when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on of apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which are very precious in the sight of the Lord. I think it's good to ask ourselves concerning the whole issue of of head coverings related to women, and that is, Why did they wear head coverings at all in the church at Corinth? Why were women wearing head coverings in the church of Corinth? Were were Christian women and wives wearing head coverings in the church of Corinth because there are multiple Old Testament uh, passages that God require that we could cite that that states that God requires women to wear head coverings. Can we find even one commandment in the Old Testament that commands that of a woman? And you don't. There's not one that's in the Old Testament. Not even one. Were Christian wives and women in the church at Corinth wearing head coverings as a result of some teaching of Jesus? No, he never mentioned it. He never taught it as a requirement. The reason that the Christian women in the church at Corinth were wearing head coverings in that church at Corinth was because that was the cultural expectation of women in that part of the world in that day. Not God's expectation. It was a cultural expectation. And in order and to fail to honor that cultural expectation would have been viewed by others as an act of rebellion against her husband's authority and thus rebellion against God's authority structure for the home. If we were not, if they were not wearing head coverings, uh, because this was a well-supported requirement of Scripture, if we could quote all kinds of verses saying that 
women who worship the God of the Bible to wear head coverings, I mean, then if they took off of their head coverings, then Paul's instruction to them would have been completely different than the instruction that he gives here. He would have used chapter and verse to bring them back in the line with God's commandments, but he doesn't do that. And why doesn't he do it? For the simple reason that in taking off their head covering, they were not violating a biblical command in doing so, but violating a local cultural expectation. Now, why make such a big deal out of all of this? Here's why. I bring it up because very often when a person takes the position that I do and that Paul is addressing a cultural issue in this passage, someone then will raise this complaint. And it's fair. And it's good. It means somebody's thinking, and I like that. But they'll typically raise this complaint. Well, if you're going to explain away all of the clear demands uh, of this passage by saying that Paul is addressing a cultural issue then you are giving everyone the right to explain away any demand of Scripture on the basis of culture. Here's the problem with that. That position assumes that head coverings for women in the church at Corinth was a biblical requirement when it was not. It was a cultural experience. I would never ever, a cultural expectation, I would never attempt to explain away any clear demand of Scripture in order to accommodate the culture or on the basis of culture. But we are certainly free to recognize a cultural expectation for what it is and then to take the point or the principle that Paul is making here and then apply to it, apply it to our lives in the light of the culture that we live in. And what's the big point that Paul is making in this passage? Here's the point. Here's the takeaway. That as Christians, we need to be sensitive to the culture we live in regarding the expression of our liberties and be willing to forego any expression of our liberties that would reflect badly upon God or cause Him to be misunderstood by others in our culture. All the way through this section of 1 Corinthians, beginning back in chapter 8, all the way through chapter 10, we've been... That First Corinthians has been dealing with Christian liberties and addressing a situation that Christians in Corinth dealt with on a daily basis, and that was eating meat that had been offered unto idols. And, and Paul taught all of that and gave them instruction on all of that in order to teach the higher principle, that while it... Uh, there was liberty to eat meat offered to idols. It shouldn't be done if it stumbles another Christian or if it creates confusion in the minds of non-Christians concerning the God that we serve. That the spiritual welfare of other Christians and the salvation of the lost are more important than my liberties. Well, in the United States of America and in the Western world, Eating meat offered to idols is not a part of our culture. It has nothing to do at all with our culture. And yet we spent weeks studying it. That's not something that we uh, deal with. But we took the principle Paul was teaching about not elevating our liberties in our, cult, in our culture above the spiritual welfare of other Christians or the salvation of someone who doesn't know the Lord yet, and we applied it to our lives and to our culture. Just yesterday, I'm reading in Second Peter as a part of my devotional life, and Peter writes and talks about submitting to kings and talks about how slaves are to serve their masters. And yet here I am, I live in the United States of America, we don't have a king. And here I live in the United States of America where slavery is no longer something that is practiced here. So do I take those verses and say they have nothing to do with me? They have nothing to teach me at all? No. I take what 
was the culture of that day and what Paul, uh, Peter had to say about government, and I apply it not to a king today in the United States of America because we don't, but I take it and I apply that principle then to the political leadership of this country. And I take the passages where Paul talks about, uh, Peter, Peter talks about the relationship between the slave and the slave owner and the relationship between the slave owner and the slave. That isn't something that we deal with, but we rightly apply it to the closest thing that we have to that in our culture, and that is uh, employee-employer relationships. And so you take the principle and you bring it into your culture and you apply it. We do that all the time through the whole uh, Bible. Now, perhaps the closest equivalent to the head covering issue in our culture would be wedding rings. So what if upon becoming a Christian, uh, most married women became Christians, and then suddenly they decided they weren't going to wear their wedding rings. They stopped wearing their wedding rings. Never a good sign, is it? I've known people through the years, Christians, they've taken off their wedding rings and they're not wearing them anymore. Why aren't you wearing your wedding ring anymore? Oh, you know, okay, yeah, and then six months, then we find out the whole story about what's going on. So it's never a good thing. Somebody stop and say, here in our culture, all of a sudden, women or wives are becoming uh, Christians, and the first thing they do is they start to shed their wedding rings. Technically, they could choose to do so. I mean, wearing a wedding ring is not commanded by God in the Scripture. It is 100% a cultural thing. You go to India... And when I've had the privilege of going to India a number of times, and when we get at the airport or wherever and we start to fly over or whatever, you, all the men in the group, they take off their wedding rings because it's an offense in that culture for men uh, to wear a wedding ring. And so that's a completely different culture. So it's a tradition. People wear wedding rings today not because God has commanded it to be so, but they do so because it's a purely cultural thing. But if a woman did that and said, yes, I've become a Christian now and I've decided I'm not going to wear my wedding ring anymore and I have the freedom not to do that, well, I tell you, you could do it, but boy, you would sure raise some eyebrows among your family and your friends and your co-workers and everybody else. Somebody take you aside and say, well, you know, I noticed that, uh, that since you've become a Christian, you're no longer uh, wearing your wedding ring. That kind of concerns me a little bit. And... I'd like you to tell me a little bit more about this Christianity thing that you're into. And believe me, in the back of their minds, they are not looking at Christianity in a favorable light at all. They're concerned about it. And far from making the Christianity attractive to them, it would confuse them, make them fearful and suspicious of Christianity and cause them not to want to have anything to do with it at all, which is way too high of a price to pay for the expression of our Christian liberties. And this is what was happening with the head covering in Corinth. That was the risk that these Christian women were taking in that culture. The same thing would be true in any culture. If a wife became a Christian and then suddenly ceased to take the reputation of their husband seriously uh, at all, or to take the input of their husband into account concerning their actions or their decisions or their dress and so forth. It would just simply raise concerns and suspicions about Christianity, and which is the last thing that a Christian would want to do in people's minds. Again, as I've mentioned, I've had the privilege of traveling to India a number of times through the years to serve with uh, Gospel for Asia, Part of the culture of India, this is a culture that is hundreds of years old and even thousands of years old, husbands and wives do not show any public affection toward one another. Uh, We know plenty of affection is occurring elsewhere, uh, like everywhere else in the world. But publicly, there is no show of affection. There is no uh, hugging. There is no kissing. There is no hand-holding. There is none of that. And additionally, when in public, 
Wives walk several steps behind their husband, even when it's just the two of them out for a walk. Uh, When in public, Dr. K.P. O'Hannon, the president of Gospel for Asia, his wife Gisela walks behind him. Why? Because in that culture, that is one of the ways that a wife shows respect for the authority of her husband. And Gisela does that not because of a biblical command, but out of sensitivity to the culture. If she didn't do it, she would slam doors closed within that culture, and the overwhelming majority of people would never be open to hearing the gospel at all through Gospel for Asia. Now, when I first went to India and I witnessed this relationship, the husbands, the wives, and no hugging, no hand holding hands and all of this and the walking behind and all of that, I thought to myself, what, you know, what they ought to do, I mean, enough, because I'm kind of intolerant of uh, customs or traditions or uh, man-made, man-made traditions and that kind of, of stuff at all. I don't have a, a high degree of patience for it. Um, probably to a fault. But I looked and I thought, you know, why we have these liberty as Christians and we have the beauty of the marriage relationship described in the scriptures that are here and all. And I thought to myself, well, it it would be, you know, why why should the Christians there in India just submit to all of these cultural expectations? They ought to just throw them all off and let India see the beauty and the the freedom of, of Christianity that it brings to the marriage relationship. But I was, I was the stupid head related to that. And after being there for a little while, I realized that if Christians did this in the culture of India, then Christianity would be rejected. Not on the basis of the claims of Christ, not on the basis of the cross or on the basis of the way of salvation, but on the basis of the alarm that such a disregard for their culture would produce in most of the Indian people. And so in the context of Indian culture, uh, to do that, uh, throw off those norms related to how a husband and a wife relate to one another publicly, uh, that... Uh, and, and that would be to exercise liberties and freedoms that are far beyond what the culture could legitimately bear or absorb at the moment. In other words, you could win the battle, but you'd lose the war. And what you would be communicating is you, you would win in communicating to the world, here's the liberty that we have in Christ, but because it would be a bigger shock than people could process, you'd lose the war of desiring to bring people to salvation, to the forgiveness of sins, because no one would stick around long enough to listen to you talk about anything, much less about heaven and much else about God or the gospel, because the disregard for the culture would wipe them out. They wouldn't want anything to do with a God that would turn a person into the kind of person that you are in terms of disregarding the culture. And that's what would happen in India. And as Christians, we're to be sensitive to our culture. Jesus was. One time Jesus, as he was ministering, he was in the north, by the Sea of Galilee, a city called Capernaum, which is built right on the Sea of Galilee. And he was there with Peter. And the religious leaders came to Peter. They didn't come to Jesus. They came to Peter and they said, How come your master doesn't pay the temple tax? And the temple tax was a voluntary tax. Um, that was was paid, uh, it wasn't required. And so they came and they noticed that Jesus didn't follow the tradition. He didn't pay the temple tax. And so they caught Peter, asked him, why didn't he uh, uh, do that? And, and uh, you know, confronted him related to it. Because in the minds of, of the Jewish culture of that day, if a Jewish man failed to pay the temple tax then it would cause religious Jews to doubt his seriousness about the things of God. And so Jesus realized, I have a freedom not to pay that tax, but I know the problem it's going to create in people's minds if I don't pay this tax. 
and that the people in Corinth will no longer view me as the Son of God come to provide for their salvation. All they will think about is, that's the rabbi who is making a big issue over not paying the temple tax. And Jesus could have won the battle but lost the war, and he's not interested in that. So he said, Peter, go to the shore, throw a line in. The first fish that comes out will have the money in its mouth to pay the tax for you and for me. And so Peter did. And Jesus could have fought the culture, but he knew if he did that in the city of Capernaum, then he would have been rewritten and Christianity would have been rewritten in the minds of people completely different than what it really is all about. And that is becoming saved, having a personal relationship with God. And so he laid aside that liberty so that he wouldn't create any confusion or a distraction. And he laid aside the liberty because what was at stake was far more important. And every Christian missionary in the world understands this. And so should every single Christian about whatever culture we're in. Now let me close by addressing a couple of odds and ends. That gives some of you great hope. Um, the word close. In verse 10, he speaks about angels and declares, For this reason the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, have a head covering, because of the angels. And then in a nutshell, I think what Paul is speaking here is that angels are present any time we're together to worship. Angels were present in the spiritual realm in the church services in Corinth, just as they are right now. Um, you ever thought, I remember when I was a kid and had a 9-volt transistor radio like most of us had, and uh, that was about as what you could afford, and you could barely buy the batteries <clears throat> to keep it, uh, keep it going. I used to listen to KFRC and uh, KYA. That was rock and roll stations out of the Bay Area up into Napa, and you'd sit and you'd turn that on, and you're getting something out of San Francisco, and that thing, how can that move through the air and come to my transistor radio, and I get music out of it, you know, the Beatles or whatever. And, but, and then today, wow, what's going through the atmosphere with cell phones and uh, the government spying on us at the moment or whatever kind of thing? I mean, it's just if that was opened up to us. But even beyond that, in the spiritual realm, the Holy Spirit is present with us, today, but there's a great angelic host that's engaged in all of this. Why does he bring up angels related to all of this? Because in the Garden of Eden, they witnessed the fall of Adam and Eve, and how did the fall of Adam and Eve occur? They both bore responsibility, but it was because Eve usurped the authority of her husband, and she was tempted by the devil, and rather going to the husband than to deal with the issue, that was his call whether they would partake of that fruit or not. She partook of that. She broke God's authority structure, and then she then offered it to Adam to eat, and he bore his own responsibility related to it. But the the angels were witness to this insubordination in the Garden of Eden and saw the tremendous fall that occurred that we all bear the consequences of to this day. And God said, the angels that are present in a worship service, I want them, when they look at the the, uh, women who are present in the service, that they are seeing wives who are expressing submission to their husbands. And again, in ancient Corinth, that was best expressed by wearing a head covering. Now, in verse 13, it says, Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? In that culture, in the light of everything that he's laid out, the obvious answer is no. Now, my time is almost gone here, but I want you to notice in verses 14 and 15 that Paul is saying that in whatever culture we are in as Christians, um, we should not do anything in that culture that blurs the healthy differences between the sexes. Christian men should be men, and nobody should wonder if they're a woman. 
Christian women should be women, and no one should wonder whether they are a man, because that's how God wants it. That's how it's expressed in nature. And he talks there in verse 14 about men and long hair. He said, does not nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him? I'm much more comfortable teaching this passage now than I was 25 years ago. Um, Had to do a song and dance then. Now it is. It's just a shame, 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 shame. But again, let's give some thought to this. This, it, it, this speaks to the fact that a man should not wear his hair in a way that causes people to question their sexuality in a way that makes them look feminine. And in different cultures, that differs as well. But it, but the the principle also applies to all cultures. There is in any culture, in, the, in every culture in the world, there is a place where if a man wears his hair like this, the culture is confused about the masculinity of that man. And yet, what was the norm for ancient Greece or ancient Rome or for Corinth in those days doesn't necessarily carry the same meaning for us uh, today, it does differ according to culture. For the most part, in the ancient world, even today, men wear shorter hair and the women wear uh, longer hair. But it isn't always true, and it wasn't always true in every culture. You think about um, the example of some of the most the fiercest fighting machines in ancient history were the Spartans, and they wore their hair shoulder length. We think about George Washington. You've seen the pictures. Got that hair, that wig down or whatever, real or not or what, but that was the custom of the day. Some people would look and say, what's that guy got long hair for? But it wasn't long for the day or for the culture. That was common and accepted uh, within the culture. Think about uh, Native American Indians where you've got men that have this incredible, you know, hair that they have, black hair that they have and all, and yet within their culture, the distinctions between the husband and the wife and a man and a woman didn't have so much to do with hair. They had other things that made, uh, created those distinctions in the minds of everyone. But men, they wore long hair, and yet there was no question as it relates to their uh, sexuality or their masculinity. I think about George Whitfield. You think about John Wesley, uh, men that God used in order to bring some of the greatest revivals in history to Europe and the United States, and both of them had longer hair by our standards uh, today. And so, uh, but in in all of these examples, no one was in the context of their culture confused about their masculinity. In our culture, everything goes. I mean, there is, there is, a, uh, you can have a guy that's got long hair and, uh, and he's got this big bushy beard that goes with it and he's wearing greasy overalls and you say he's in no danger of being considered uh, feminine at all on that. So in every varying length of things, there are times where you can look and you can see someone maybe walking down a street and you see someone and they've got this beautiful long hair down to their backside and everything and you think, um, boy, she sure can grow a head of hair. And then you get up past them and then you see the beard. Uh, maybe that's a shame, you know, I don't know. Maybe that's why he grew the beard a little bit. But there shouldn't be this, uh, men, men shouldn't be sending mixed signals um, in uh, in in that way, and uh, no Christian should create confusion, Christian man, related to their sexuality or their, their masculinity. God created a male and female, and, that's, and we're to honor that. He talks about women and their long hair in verse 15, and in general, women uh, have been given a natural ability to grow a beautiful head of hair, of long hair that most men don't have. Um, as men, in comparison to women, uh, we go uh, bald at an alarming rate. And, uh, and even those that do try to grow their hair out like women, it comes out looking all uh, bushy and crazy and goofy and uh, can't quite grow a head of hair like a gal can. But basically what he's saying here is to the women is embrace your femininity. God has given it to you. And this doesn't mean that... Uh, 
either that a Christian woman in our culture can't have shorter hair. Because, again, in our culture, all kinds of hairstyles for women are the norm and they are considered to be feminine. How many women, I mean, even in this room, they've got these little pixie cuts and they're very feminine and very beautiful and it has nothing to do with the length of hair. But it was different in the culture of Corinth. But no woman should wear her hair in a way that makes it confusing to people as to her femininity or her sexuality. And uh, in the ancient world and really in much of the world, even today, long hair is a visible expression of uh, a woman's uniqueness among uh, the two sexes. Now, I close with verse 16. Some of you thought, I thought you said you were closing earlier. You're new here. No, I am, I'm very close here. Verse 16 is my favorite verse in, in all of it. But if anyone seems to be contentious, Paul says, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. And Paul concludes this entire section here by declaring that any, if anyone's contentious related to any of this about head coverings or about hair on men and all, he doesn't wish to argue with people uh, over this. He has made his case and he is uh, made the case for Corinth there. He's laid out the, the greater principle, but he's also determined not to make Christianity about women's head coverings and about the length of men's hair. Because if he made that a commandment, that's all we'd have been talking about for the last 2,000 years. Is did you wear your head covering and how long is your hair? We'd have every kind of litmus test and standard and is, is, it, is it a handkerchief good enough or does it have to be a veil or does it have to be this and up? Hey, come here, fella. That's over your ear. And all Paul says, listen, I, it, I, I'm, I don't want in the purpose of this, all that I'm writing here is to not make Christianity about head coverings and hair length. And so in verse 16, obviously what he's teaching here to even the Christians in Corinth where this applied 100% concerning uh, head coverings and concerning hair length, he, it cannot be a commandment to all churches in all places throughout all time because he doesn't even make it a commandment to them. Otherwise, he would not yield the point that he does there in verse 16. And you notice that he declares that if it becomes a point of contention, then this custom or this practice of wearing the hair, uh, hair covering and the length of hair, that is the side that is to give way in all of this. Again, he is very determined not to make this more than it is not to make Christianity about fighting over head coverings on women, the length of hair on men in the minds of Christians or in the minds of the unsaved world, and it's very, very wise. Some, in an NIV in the New American Standard Version, they translate verse 16 this way. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. And by removing such there, as it is in the King James, in the New King James, and putting other in there, they are basically saying that what Paul is saying here is that if anyone is contentious with us about this teaching on head coverings and hair length, that we have no other custom but this one. This is to be kept in all of the churches, but we're not adding any other customs to you. The exact opposite of the meaning of the New King James and uh, the King James Version. The Greek word that is used for such in verse 16 in most of your Bibles, in the original language uh, the passage of this passage, it clearly means such. It does not mean other. That's an editorial comment on the part of the translators. It means such. And so it's best to take the meaning of the verse just as we have it in the King James and in the New King James. And so there you have it. And uh, in the spirit of verse 16, group hug now. Come on, group hug. (laughs) Bring all of your questions. 
to your home fellowship this week, and those leaders will be very happy to answer all of them for you. Let me restate the lesson of the passage. As Christians, we need to be sensitive to the culture that we're living in regarding the expression of our liberties and be willing to forego any expression of our liberties that would, number one, reflect poorly upon the Lord in exercising them, or, number two, that would reflect poorly upon Christianity and other Christians, or, three, would cause people to hesitate to receive God's invitation to become a Christian as well. And that is a very, very important and a very, very sober lesson for any Christian in any culture. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Thank you, Lord, for your Holy Bible. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for how refreshing it is that you have things to speak to us and how to help us see the majors and the minors related to life and how unbalanced we can become so readily and make the little thing the big thing and the big thing the little thing and mess your name up and our name up and Christianity up in the eyes of the world. And we pray that you take this passage and the time that we have spent in it and take that lesson concerning our liberties And drive it home. Give it a beautiful place in our hearts forever, this side of heaven, Lord. Later won't matter to take into each and every culture that we find ourselves in, not only around the world and in the United States and California, but even within our neighborhood and even within our families. Thank you for this needed instruction. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.